0: Well, hello, everyone, and we are having a great City Lit Festival so far. It's been an incredible day. I'm a little prejudiced about um, our next writer that's going to be uh, speaking. I discovered her book before, and I'm proud to say this, all the great reviews in the New York Times and the Washington Post, and it made me feel really good because I ran in um, to the office and, and said, to Judy Cooper, and I had the book, I said, we've got to bring her here, we've got to bring her here, um, and then the reviews came out and everything, and then I started, um, and I'm not a big technological person, but I started um, looking at her blog, and it made me laugh in her outlook on life and everything, and if you don't know, she is the best-selling author of the new book, Before You Suffocate Your Own Fool Self, and just the title alone spoke to me could hear my grandmother saying similar things uh, to me, and it's a book that's been receiving high praise from readers and critics alike. Her work has been published in magazines including the Paris Review, American Book Review, Black Renaissance, Callaloo, and Phoebe. She's also been anthologized <laughs> um, in the Best American Short Stories, 2008, New Stories from the South, and the Best American Short Stories, 2010. And we're all pleased that she's working on a novel. Uh, The the Empire Has No Clothes. And we're hoping she'll come back to the Pratt Library when it's complete. So without further ado, welcome to the city-led festival, Danielle Evans.
1: Hi. Thank you all for coming out on a rainy Saturday. So there's this persistent rumor that I'm a short story writer, uh, but I'm actually kind of a long story writer, and I felt like it would be mean to read at you for an hour, so I'm not going to do that. Um, I'm going to read at you for about 20 minutes, and, uh, so I'm going to read part of a short story called Snakes, and then I thought we could do some Q&A, and I can just talk to you a little bit, if that's okay with you. Um, so I'm going to start at the beginning, so there's no need for preface. Um, snakes the summer I turned nine, I went to Tallahassee to visit my grandmother for the first and last time. It was a hot, muggy summer, the kind of weather where you think it's going to rain any minute, but it rarely does. That much hasn't changed in 16 years, not the weather, not my sense of Tallahassee then and now, as a place where your skin crawls with a ins- with sensation that something urgent is about to happen, but you never know what or when. That first summer I flew to visit, I was skittish as soon as I exited the plane from New Jersey, escorted by a tight-skirted stewardess who handed me a set of gold plastic pin-on wings before we walked to the arrivals gate. My grandmother had me picked up from the airport by a driver in a company car. The driver worked for a plastics company that still had my grandfather's name, though he'd been dead since before I was born. The driver reminded me a little bit of my father, who had the same reddish-brown skin, the same big smile, and while we waited for my luggage to come around the baggage carousel, he gave me a stick of cinnamon bubblegum that I folded and tucked into the pocket of my shorts along with the wings, which I could feel pressing into my leg. My parents, as consolation for shipping me off to my grandmother while they spent the summer in Brazil researching indigenous environmental activism, had loaded my suitcase with books. It was something they did every time they went somewhere without me. Along with the small paperback dictionary my parents had given me last summer, I kept a couple of the new books with me to thumb through on the plane. Introduction to Rites and Rituals, Talismans, a photographic record, Natural Wonders of the Amazon Rainforest. The book on talismans I found particularly intriguing. I looked at pictures of stones and amulets, brightly dyed pieces of fabric, small and elaborately carved sculptures, and wished that I had brought something magical with me. I wondered if gum or plastic was strong enough to be a talisman. I thought of fashioning the wings into a protective necklace. My own interactions with my grandmother had been limited. My mother avoided family events whenever possible, and at the handful I'd accompanied her to, to, my grandmother had barely spoken to me. She was the only thing in the world I'd ever seen my mother scared of. My mother, who told offhand stories about living through monsoons in Asia and military coups in Africa and near encounters with poisonous footlong centipedes in South America, the way other people's mothers talked about what they'd had for dinner the night before. Every time she got off the phone with my grandmother, my mother drank a glass of wine, followed by three cups of Zen tea. My father, who almost never yelled, raised his voice at her from behind their closed bedroom door when she made plans that involved seeing her mother telling her she ought to know better by now and refusing to go with her. They'd fought over sending me to my grandmother's in the first place, an argument I'd strained my ears to hear and silently hoped my father would win. Usually when my parents traveled, I stayed with my Aunt Clara, my father's sister, but she'd been in poor health, and my mother worried that having me for the summer would be too much for her to keep up with. My father pointed out that I didn't need much keeping up with. I read books, I ate when compelled, I sometimes wrote embellished accounts of my day in a leather-bound black diary. I was a sort of child who generally had to be coerced into playing with other children, the kind whose parents took her to anthropology department cocktail parties so often that their colleagues referred to me as their youngest graduate student. But my mother had said it was too much to impose on Aunt Claire, and anyway, it wasn't me my grandmother hated, it was her, to which my father had responded, give her time. I rolled the words over and over in my head, willing him to be wrong. But if I thought my grandmother would like me better when my mother wasn't around, a re- reunion quickly disabused me of the thought. Unbelievable was the first thing my grandmother said when she saw me. From the airport to her house, it had been 20 minutes of loopy, winding roads, packed so densely with trees that, looking out the windows from the back seat of the car, I could often see nothing but the green canopies that shaded us. My grandmother's house was at the end of a circular driveway, a white wooden old southern masterpiece with columns on the front porch and a veranda above it. Coral vines crept gently up its sides, and although it was only four bedrooms inside, at the time I thought of it as a mansion— It could have contained at least three townhouses the size of the one I lived in back in Camden. The driver removed my bags from the trunk and walked me up the stairs to the front door. Instinctively, I held his hand as he rang the bell and squeezed it tighter as the door opened to reveal my grandmother behind it, squinting at me as though her eyes were playing tricks on her. But for the expression on her face, the way her eyes went from startled to angry as she said, unbelievable, she looked remarkably like my mother. They had the same delicate upturned nose and wide brown eyes, the same fine blonde hair, Though my mother generally wore hers loose, and my grandmother's was held back in an immaculate twist and threaded with fine streaks of gray. She stepped out of the doorway and gestured toward the driver with one hand, motioning for him to take my suitcase up the spiral staircase. She ushered me into the house, shutting the door behind me. She gave me a perfunctory kiss on the top of the forehead and reached a hand out to tentatively touch one of my cornrows. She shook her head. Did your mother do this to you? My hair? I asked. I looked down at the polished hardwood of the floor beneath me. My mother could barely do her, my hair herself and knew I'd never managed to keep it untangled on my own. It was one of those things white mothers of black children learn the hard way once and then tend to remember. Just before i left, she had gotten at one of her undergraduates to braid my hair in tight pink lotion cornrows. So recent, they still itched and pulled at my scalp. Mommy can't do my hair, I said. A girl from her school did it for her. I swear, even in a different continent, that woman, when you go upstairs, take them out. You're a perfectly decent-looking child, and for whatever reason, your mother sent you here looking like a little hoodlum. I'm wearing pink, I said, more in my own defense than in my mother's. I had dressed myself, and Aunt Claire had driven me to the airport. My parents had left for Rio the day before. My grandmother considered my argument, evaluated my hot pink shorts as if prepared to object to them as well. But before she could, my cousin Allison came bounding down the stairs to hug me, lawn pigtails flying behind her. When she threw her arms around me and kissed me on the cheek, she smelled strongly of Sour Apple Jolly Ranchers, a woman's perfume that she later confessed she'd stolen from her mother. I think you look nice, whispered Allison. She took me upstairs to the room we were sharing for the summer and then spent the next half hour helping me undo each braid, my hair spiraling out into tight, disheveled curls. Allison had been my parents' ace in the hole, the only thing that kept me from trying to secretly squeeze myself into one of their suitcases so they'd have to take me to Brazil with them. Her parents were spending the summer on a Caribbean cruise and my uncle had suggested to my mother that since she'd be at my grandmother's all summer anyway it might be nice for us to spend some time together. Allison was my playmate at awkward family gatherings the person I made faces at across the table at a Christmas dinner the one year we'd all gathered at her parents' house in Orlando. It was the last holiday my mother had agreed to spend with her own mother. I'd heard her on the phone last Christmas a year later saying almost angrily, no, we're not coming. Last year she said she was dying and then she didn't. Allison made those first few weeks at my grandmother's house bearable, almost pleasant. I'd never had a backyard before, but at my grandmother's we had an acre of greenery. There was a lawn of impossibly bright grass, landscape with flowering hydrangea bushes and neatly clipped ornamental shrubbery. Half a mile down the block, the manicured lawns of my grandmother's neighborhood gave way to almost tropical lushness, hanging crepe myrtles with vivid pink flowers and twisted many stemmed trunks, tall oaks brushed with Spanish moss. When we followed the gravel path off the main road, we found ourselves at a lake about a mile wide. It took us the better part of a day to circle its swampy edges. We shaded ourselves from the thick summer heat by resting underneath one tree after another. The first time we went to the lake, our grandmother admonished us to never do it again, screamed at us that we'd worried her by running off, and the lake was a dangerous place for little girls to be alone. It went in one year and out the other. We were already in love with what we'd found there. It wasn't that my grandmother didn't try. She woke us up one morning with the enthusiastic promise that we'd be going swimming. She laid out our clothes for us, and though usually when we went to the pool at home, I climbed into the car wearing nothing but my swimsuit and jellies, I wanted my grandmother to be happy with me and wore the yellow sundress she'd picked out. Allison's dress was blue, which matched her eyes, and the bow my grandmother put in her hair after she brushed it. My grandmother tried to brush my hair, too, but between the muggy, humid summer air and the ineptitude of my attempts to control it, it had turned itself into a tangled baby afro, one that Allison's fine, bristled brush did nothing for. That morning, my grandmother set out to comb it into pigtails, but after I began to cry from the pain of her yanking on my scalp and demanded hair grease, which of course she didn't have, the comb finally snapped, and my grandmother gave up. Maybe the water will help, she said, defeated. I didn't understand why we needed to be so presentable to go swimming in the first place, not until she turned into the driveway of a clubhouse that looked like something out of a fairy tale. Though we were there to swim, it took us two hours to get anywhere near the pool. My grandmother walked us around the looping paths of the private lake, encouraging us to feed the ducks and asserting how pretty the lake was, as if trying to convince us of something. She took us for brunch in the clubhouse. The tables were a dark oak, and the ceiling above us was decorated with crisscrossing gold latticework. I made myself dizzy mapping out an imaginary chart of constellations. Halfway through our pancakes, a woman in the tallest heels I'd ever seen a person actually walk in came into the room. Lydia, she said when she saw my grandmother. Until then, I hadn't thought of my grandmother as having a first name. The woman's skirt swished from side to side when she walked, and up close, the thin brown straps of her high-heeled sandals wrapped delicately around her ankles. She kissed my grandmother on both cheeks and then turned to us expectantly. It's so good to see you out again, Lydia, she said. And who are these little dolls you have with you? Marianne, meet my granddaughters, Allison and Tara, my grandmother said evenly. Marianne's face flickered for a second and then resettled into its previous blank enthusiasm. Tara, she said, stretching it out like it was two words. This one must be Amanda's. Amanda was my mother's name, but the way she said Amanda, she might have been saying the earthquake or the flesh-eating disease. Still, I didn't think much of her identifying me right away. Of course, I was my mother's daughter. I had her eyes, her heart-shaped mouth, and one dimpled smile, her round face only darker. Yes, I remember Amanda, Marianne went on. I guess she never changed, did she? She grew up, said my grandmother with a nervous laugh. They all do, said Marianne, who went on to talk about her sons, an orthodontist and a deputy mayor. My grandmother looked uncomfortable, even after Marianne went to sit at her own table. Though usually she advised us to chew each bite 20 times because we were young ladies, and not wolves, she rushed us to the rest of our breakfast, admonishing us that our eggs were getting cold, even when we could still see the steam rising from them. After the meal, my grandmother relaxed again, but she made us walk around the lake for half an hour to let our food digest. When we finally got to the pool, Allison and I were done with decorum. We threw our sundresses on the hot concrete and cannonballed into the water, ignoring our grandmother's shouts that we should be more careful. And who did we think was going to pick up our things from where we left them? We played Marco Polo while our grandmother sunbathed and read the kind of novel I could tell from the cover my mother would have called the waste of a perfectly valuable tree. When we got tired of Marco Polo, we tried doing handstands in the shallow end and seeing who could hold her breath the longest. And when that got boring, we played rock, paper, scissors to see which of us had to get out of the pool and go ask our grandmother for a penny to die for. I lost. I climbed the ladder and saw that my grandmother had been joined by a woman in sunglasses and a straw hat. Grandma, I called, and both women looked up, startled. I asked my grandmother for a penny, and she rummaged through her purse to oblige. Amanda's, I take it, the woman beside her asked. She said my mother's name with the same tone as the woman from breakfast. My grandmother nodded. What's Amanda up to these days? The woman asked, pressing her mouth into a thin lip smile. She turned away and reached for her sunscreen as if already bored by the answer. She's a doctor, said my grandmother. I opened my mouth to clarify that she wasn't a doctor doctor, but my grandmother shooed me away. I started to run off, then slowed down behind her, waiting to hear what else she said about my mother. Tara's adopted, my grandmother said, from Brazil. Amanda's down there now. She always did have a good heart. Here are some things I didn't know then. The summer she was 15, my mother was forever banned from the premises of the Palisade Hills Country Club after what was later described to me as a small vandalism incident in protest of the golf course's de facto segregation policy. The summer she was 16, my mother, bristling under my grandmother's restrictions, ran away from home for several months. While she was gone, my grandfather died unexpectedly, and no one knew where to reach her until months after the funeral. My grandmother and my uncles buried him alone, and never let my mother forget it, because no one ever let her. Almost two years before I came to visit, a small cyst in my grandmother's breast had turned cancerous. My grandmother underwent a mastectomy, radiation, and reconstructive surgery, and was only recently back on her feet. My mother had promised to visit her in the hospital. She didn't. When we played in her yard, my grandmother usually sat on the porch to watch us, but eventually the phone or some other thing within the house called her away. Allison and I ran. We went for the trees, for the gravel path, for the wonders of the neighborhood, or the seclusion of the nearby lake. Away from our grandmother, we mimic the lives we imagined our parents having in our absence. We pretend to be my parents, carrying natural wonders of the Amazon rainforest around the northern Tallahassee suburbs, fancifully misidentifying dozens of plants, insects, and reptiles. We harass gardeners and mailmen, occasionally knock on the doors of my grandmother's increasingly bemused neighbors, calling ourselves ethnographers and asking them to tell us about their people. Then we'd pretend to be Allison's parents. Those afternoons, we stripped to our bathing suits, slattered ourselves with coconut tanning oil, though I was already browner than the woman on the bottle, and made over our faces with Allison's pilfered makeup kit. She swore her mother had so many cosmetics bags she hadn't even noticed one was missing, something I found shocking, having a mother who practically considered chapstick ornamental. After our makeovers, Allison and I would climb to sit beside each other on a branch of the biggest tree above the lake, pretending it was a ship's deck and the water beneath us the Atlantic Ocean. We imitated the way we'd heard adults talk, complained about our imaginary jobs, the scandalous behavior of our friends and coworkers, the way our families drove us crazy, and about we never forgot this part, how much we wished we'd taken our daughters with us. I liked our pretend cruise ship days because I imagined us glamorous like Allison's parents. When I pressed her for details about their travels, she'd just shrug and say, how do I know? They never take me with them. I knew better than to say that my parents never took me with them either, but they talked to me enough that I knew all about where they had been. When our secret days were finished, we'd cool off by dripping our bodies in the shallow end of the lake and then sneak back into my grandmother's house, dripping some combination of muddy lake water and suntan oil and high-end cosmetics across her floors. On those occasions that Allison couldn't manage to charm forgiveness out of her, we accepted our increasingly restrictive punishment with some combination of amusement and grim determination. We cleaned bathroom pile with a toothbrush. We were not allowed to accompany my grandmother to the city on shopping trips. We ate Brussels sprouts for dinner for an entire week. We were spanked, which was new to both of us. My grandmother blamed me more than Allison for expeditions. Though we were equally guilty, I accepted the blame, knowing that whenever it was possible, whatever punishment she gave me, Allison would take along with me. Once, we spent an entire morning locked in the bathroom. I'd been ordered not to come out until I'd done something with my hair. We thought she was kidding at first because the door only locked from the inside anyway, but when we stopped laughing and tried to open it, we found she had actually taken a clothesline and looped it from the doorknob to the banister in order to shut us in. "'Originally it was supposed to be for an hour, "'but when she told us it wasn't even a real punishment "'because a girl my age ought to be able to brush her own hair, "'and it was a travesty that my mother hadn't taught me, "'I'd muttered that she couldn't even brush my hair, "'and look how old she was, "'and just like that, one hour turned into six. "'In the bathroom, Allison and I pretended "'that we'd been confined to our cruise ship cabins "'because of stormy conditions and choppy water. "'We sang Kokomo at the top of our lungs "'and over and over again, "'and when that got old, we ran the bathtub full of water "'and splashed each other until we were soaking, "'complaining the storm was so bad our cabin was flooding.' When my grandmother finally let us out, my hair looked the same as it had that morning, only damper. Insufficiently chastised, we collapsed at her feet, giggling and shouting, Land! Land! What did it matter what chores she made us do, or how many days she forbade us to leave the house when we had each other? A month into the summer, my grandmother had a brainstorm. She sat us down in the family room after dinner one night and told us that we absolutely must stop disobeying her and running off, that she'd become very worried about us, that the next time we disappeared, she'd have no choice but to call the police. We nodded our assent, but were doubtful. Our grandmother had worried about what the neighbors would think when the gardener took a week off and dandelions had sprouted in her yard. We can only imagine what she'd do if people spotted a police car in her driveway. Sensing our skepticism, she leaned forward in her chair, looking at me first and then Allison. Do you know what's living in that lake? Our grandmother asked. I thought we did. Minnows, tadpoles, mosquitoes we regularly slapped off of ourselves. Snakes, said my grandmother. Snakes are in that lake. I giggled. We'd seen the occasional small brown garden snake. My mother had told me before she left that there were a lot of them where she grew up, and I shouldn't be alarmed because they were perfectly harmless. I repeated this to my mother. Tell your mother, said my grandmother, that when you leave a place for 20 years, a lot changes. They've got these pythons that love water. Some idiots imported them as pets, and now they're taking over. A Burmese python can grow to be the size of both of you put together, can get to you from 20 feet away. Sometimes they lay eggs in drain pipes, and the baby python will travel through the sewer pipes and come right in through a hole in the wall and eat their prey alive. When a python eats something, it crushes everything, even the bones, eats them completely. Lately, there have been a lot of cats and dogs lost, even a huge St. Bernard vanished. I'd hate to lose a granddaughter. There'd be nothing left of you to find. Tell your mother she has never had any idea how easy it is for something to be destroyed." Okay, I'm going to stop there, and I think there's a microphone over there if there are questions. Or I can just smile at you for another 20 minutes. I know it's rainy, but everybody can't be that shy. I might have to sing, and you really don't want that. I would advise you to, to head to the microphone. <laughs> yay <laughs> oh sure oh. yeah um can you say anything about uh, contemporary writing and for those of us that don't know what like the writing world is like um I mean, I think the writing world is is like a lot of different things. like the, like the business side of it, for example oh, the business side of it um the business side of it is is also like a lot of different things um i mean i I think that there are increasingly lots and lots of Venues for contemporary writing. I mean, the problem with lots and lots of venues is that the audience is, is about the same size if you listen to some people smaller, and so the way that people kind of find the writing that they want is, is a bit, um, can, can be a bit difficult. Um, and I have to say, I mean, that much of the publishing world still remains completely murky and mysterious to me, and I think partly because I'm a writer and I don't do the business end of things, but I think also because it's it's often murky and confusing to people in publishing, especially at this point in time, insofar as nobody's really sure what will happen with the future of the ebook, Nobody's really sure what will happen as we sort of compete with all these other cultural venues. I mean, I think what we're all certain of is that the story will survive, is that stories, not necessarily literally short stories, but stories, fiction, are the way that we kind of construct a narrative about ourselves or the way that we, you know, my favorite thing to say about the project of writing is that it, comforts the afflicted and afflicts the comfortable Um, I think we're all always going to need some venue for that, some venue for work that makes us feel understood in part, like somebody has captured a feeling that we thought we might have been the only ones who ever felt and also exposed to new things and kind of dropped into other worlds and I don't think that will ever go away Um, whether it happens in the form of a physical hardcover book in the next decade, I could not predict, I would imagine that it would but that may be because the way I learned to read was a way that kind of Valued um, the tactile experience of that, and and now I, I teach, um, and my students, I, I suspect that they're less engaged when they read on screens. But that may be my, me projecting my own kind of tendency to to be more distracted when I'm reading something in electronic format, and it may be something that's not true of them because that's the way that a lot of them learn to read and learn to analyze and discuss. Um, I mean, I think it'll it'll be interesting to see what happens in terms of the way that electronic publishing, publishing on demand, um, those kinds of things have democratized the publishing industry to some degree, but also, um, and and how the kind of existing publishing houses adapt to that. And also, I mean, there's a lot of interesting work coming out of smaller presses and there's a kind of sense, I I think almost universally among the writers I've talked to, that within the next couple of decades short story collections will be published more the way poetry books are, and that you'll see fewer and fewer of them in major bookstores, and that they will be mostly published by, um, published and promoted by small presses, and, and, and I don't know, I, I don't know if I would think that that's necessarily true, or that that's inevitable, but I think that, that that seems to be a sense, and it'll be interesting to see how it plays out.
0: I just had a question, not about the technical side, but more... Um where do you find that your ideas for your stories bubble up from, or how are you inspired, and secondly, the discipline of writing? Do you write every day? Is it something you do on a regular basis, or do you wait for the inspiration to come, or do you are you disciplined and write every day, whether you feel like it or not?
1: Um, to answer the first question, I think writing comes from all kinds of places. There are um, it's usually something small that has to kind of trigger a question. I I think I always start a story with a question, with the idea that I have to discover something, that I have to be the first person who's surprised or engaged. And so I often say that writers are the kind of people who will come up with the great comeback or the answer to the question three hours after the conversation is over. Um, And unfortunately, you can do nothing about that in real life, but in fiction, you can go back into those moments and think about what if. I had a teacher who used to say that the trick to fiction was to take a character... And have them say yes to everything to which a reasonable person would say no. And I think, I mean, that might be too concrete a rule to kind of enforce, but I think it's an interesting way to think about the project of fiction. Um, and it's an interesting way to think about the idea of fiction being not to repeat our lives, but to expose us to people making different and more loaded choices. So sometimes that's a matter of going back into something that actually happened and saying, Okay, well, what if this person had said yes? And then it's a a sort of sequential, and then that would have happened, and then that would have happened, and what would have changed? And sometimes it's thinking backwards, thinking, well, in that moment, who would that person have had to be for that to make sense, for them to have done that um, more reckless thing? And so sometimes it's a matter of constructing the kind of character and constructing a kind of life and context for that character that would make the more um, unusual scenario plausible. And so it's a, lot of, it's a lot of fun, it's a lot of tinkering, it's a lot of kind of going back into moments and then, and then toying with them until they're unrecognizable, until I get to the part where it surprises me. I think of short fiction in particular as being primarily about the moment when something changes and something that something can be a big thing or can be a small thing. And sometimes it's about that possibility, like something could have changed forever and for whatever reason it didn't. But that to me is where the tension in the story comes from. It's from that kind of pressure point. And so a lot of it is thinking about where's that pressure point in the story and how am I going to get there? Um, in terms of my own writing habits, when I was working on, on this book, which was like a six-year period that ended about three years ago, I was mostly working in kind of fits and starts, and so I would wait to be inspired, and I would... I liked to write the first draft in a single sitting and I would run through the first draft and then it would, sometimes I would continue to revise it immediately. Sometimes it would go in a drawer for a couple of months and I'd come back to it and, you know, spend another week with it and then go back in the drawer. There are stories that I wrote the first draft of in 24 hours and, and only edited in kind of short periods. And there are other stories that I was kind of wrestling with for years. The story it took me five years to get the first draft finished up. So every story was kind of its own process and that was okay, um, partly because when I started this book, I wasn't writing a book. I was just writing stories. I didn't know that there was a kind of end goal in mind until fairly late in the process. Um, I think with the, the novel that I'm working on now, it's been a kind of different process. I mean, people often make analogies about novels versus short stories, and they only hold up so far, but I think a big part of the, the difference is the way that you work. So somebody said recently that a novel was like a marriage and a short story is like a one night stand. I don't know. You could probably like strain that knowledge if you tried too hard. <laughs> but I think there's a way in which like I can't abandon the novel for six months in the same way that like you couldn't like leave your marriage for six months without thinking about it and come back and see if it's still interested in you because it wouldn't be there in the same way. Um, and if I leave the novel for six months because i don 't feel like working on it that it 's not there in the same way and i 'm starting over from scratch when I come back to it, no matter how many actual pages i have i 'm not in that same space anymore, and they, the pieces don 't all fit together the same way and i don 't necessarily remember what I was doing or what my intentions were, even with my elaborate notes to myself um, so i 've had to become and i 've also since I started, since I wrote this book and, and started the novel, I now have a full time teaching job, and so that 's another way in which i 've had to become more disciplined. Um, I don't know that I will ever be the kind of writer who writes for a certain number of hours every day. There are days when I feel like my writing hour is better spent walking around the neighborhood where my book is set and remembering what I was trying to do. There are days when I sit down and say it's just not there. Um, but I've gotten better, I think, about writing more consistently. And I've also, and this may be a short-lived experiment, but I've been writing longhand because I've been reading all these books about the way the internet is remapping our brain. And it concerns me. And it concerns me that I'm like distractible in a particular way. Um, and so I spend a lot of time thinking about that, and I've been actually kind of writing outside with a pen and paper for the past couple of months, so we'll see. I mean, the problem with that is that I lose every third sentence to handwriting, Um, so we'll see how that holds up. (laughs) Does anybody become unshy? I was talking, taking questions, some people just came in. I think both parts equally. I mean, I I was always a big reader. I was an only child, and I think only children tend to amuse ourselves in whatever way we can. Um, and one of those ways was reading, and the other was, like, constantly making things up. Um, and so I, I, th- I think part of it, you know, I was always drawn to, I had this list of, I wanted to be a writer and all of these other things, then I gradually realized that I wasn't good at any of those other things. <laughs> um, so luckily this worked out. But, um, but, yeah, I mean, I think it was always something that I, that I knew that I wanted to do. I was I was apparently very big on morality tales as a child, like, I wrote multiple editions of how to be a good person. Um, so if anyone would like to know, those are probably my mother's basement somewhere. <laughs> yes? In what part of the country are you from? I am from D.C. Um, I grew up in, we lived in Southwest for a little bit and the um, Northern Virginia for most of my life. Um, my family's from New York, so if you ask my mother, although she's been in D.C. since before I was born, she will tell you she's from the Bronx. But, um, so by, and I was, I was back and forth a little bit as a kid, but um, mostly the D.C. area. And I was gone for a couple of years, and I, I'm, I'm back in D.C. now, but it, it took a while. It took about seven years to get home again, but I got there eventually. <laughs> so, yes? Um, what are your thoughts about going to school to study writing versus studying something else and writing in addition to that? I mean, I think you have to know what you want out of something like an MFA program. I think that there are ways in which they can be really useful. Um, and, and partly it's a matter of, of finding the experience that's going to be right for you. I mean, you certainly don't need a degree to be a writer. So the idea of the MFA program is to ask yourself, you know, what, what do I need from this? And for me, I mean, I went because I needed the time and, frankly, the money. I mean, I didn't have a book when I finished college. I had, I had a draft of a collection that eventually became this book, but I didn't have anything that I was ready to send out in the world and say, I'm done with this, I'm ready to let it go. Um, and so for me, it was a space where I could um, write for two years and, and, and only write for two years. And, and I had various kinds of full-time jobs since then. And, and so in retrospect, I recognized the gift of that time even more than I appreciated at the time. You know, and I could write and I could pay my rent. I didn't have to worry about it. Um, and so that was a really important experience. And also, I mean, I think what an MFA program ultimately is teaching you is not how to be a writer. I mean, you have to apply to get in, which means somebody has already seen something in your work. Um, and, and you've already kind of committed to this being a path and hopefully serious enough about it that you have your own discipline and aesthetic. Um, what it's teaching you is, and helping, saving you time on is how to be a better editor of your own work. So I think part of what I learned in having kind of four different professors who had different aesthetics, who had different ideas of what they wanted from fiction, was how to filter critique and advice. How to how to sort of articulate my own project to myself in such a way that I said, no, this is what I was trying to do. So, you know, this 10% of the right advice is directly useful because these people understood what I was trying to do. This 30% of the advice is, is not something I'm going to do, but it's useful because it tells me what I did wrong. It tells me, like, people said, cut the mother out of this story then they didn't understand something about the importance of that character. So how can I go back and tinker with that? And the other 50% are people who, for whatever reason, are just not my audience, um, or just not like hearing the work in the way that I need them to. Um, and I think that that filter you're going to have to have as a writer, no matter what. Like whether or not you ever go to an MFA program, you're going to be edited. You're going to get feedback from from critics, from readers, from your mom, you know, from everybody and anybody who reads your work will have something to say about it. So it's important to, to have some sense of what it is you're trying to do. And I mean, I think sometimes I hear people say, well, I have this anxiety that if I go to an MFA program, they will, um, like, crush my unique voice. Like, I'll listen too much to other people. And that seems to me an anxiety that says to me that maybe whether it's an MFA program or a writing group or just publishing in general, that that person has some more time to sit with their own work. Because, because if I hear that anxiety, a sense of, like, I don't know yet what I'm trying to do enough, like there's nothing I'm committed to as an artist enough that somebody else's opinion couldn't change it. And so, I mean, I think that you have to be at that point where you can articulate your own aesthetic enough that you feel like you can hold up to that kind of critique, that you feel like there's something about my own writing or my own voice that I wouldn't change and then be flexible enough to kind of hear people on the rest of it. Um, so that would be my sense of, if you're ready for that, there are reasons to go into it in terms of having the time and space to write. There are reasons to, even if you, you are not in a program that's funding you, to go in just to have the kind of discipline of forcing yourself to finish a project in a set amount of time. There are reasons to go into it if you want a teaching degree. Um, but it's not a kind of, I wouldn't say anybody who wants to be a writer should go run out and get this degree. I think it's a matter of kind of thinking, what, am I, what do I want it for, and, and what's the best kind of program for me to get that thing that I want from. I had a hand back there. Um, that's a good question. I think I often do start with the idea of a character, but part of what's not formed is what that character does. I mean, I always think that We say sometimes the difference between a round character and a flat character is whether that character is capable of surprise. And so I think that I have to... Again, in the same way that you can know a person, but that person can still surprise you, I feel like I start out feeling like the characters are my friends, but I want to know more about them. And so we we, we get better acquainted as I kind of push them into scenarios. And, And sometimes... What I do if, I feel like, if I'm feeling stuck with the story or feeling like I'm floundering about the characters is push them into a situation in which they're forced to make some kind of a choice or forced to take some kind of an action in which there's a kind of either-or proposition because then I know something about who they are based on what they do. Um, I think that's really important in fiction, especially short fiction, is that what drives the story is action and choice, and that's where our own moral investment as readers comes in, is that sense of kind of why did that person do that instead of this and, and that unraveling. Um, And so for me, I think I don't always know what they're going to do. There have been stories where I've gotten to the end with an intention of kind of, and this will happen, and this will happen, and I get there, and I think, no, this character wouldn't do that at all. And so I have gotten to know the character better in the course of the story. Um, And there are other stories where um, there are smaller, more subtle things that kind of, the character ends up doing the same major action, but I understand better how they got there through the writing of the smaller scenes. Speak now or forever hold your peace. (laughs) <laughs> um, it is called The Empire Has No Clothes it is about I, I keep, I'm going to have to like hire some people to recast this description because it's about a woman who works at a progressive charter school in DC and she's rewriting their history textbook and there's also a senate election and when I say all that people are like so you're writing a literary novel that's also a history book that's also a policy paper Like, why would you do that? Who would read that? but, um, but there's also lots of sex and drugs and, um, <laughs> and I think it'll be and I'm having fun writing it which I wasn't always I mean it's been it's been fun to move into that form because it's a the novel form is a bit more encompassing. So as much as it's forced me into a certain kind of discipline that does not come naturally to me, it's also, I mean, there are there are different kind of formal experiments. There's a character who has a blog, for example. So there's like this recurring blog theme. There are parts of the actual kind of book that they're writing that, that work into the text, and it's a it's a kind of a bigger, more encompassing voice. So I can get in and out of lots of characters' heads, and so it took me, you know, a couple of a couple of years just to figure out the structure of it. But now that I'm there. Um, I'm really excited about it, so um, having said all of that, (laughs) um, I am supposed to turn it into my editor in October, so it would be out hopefully fall of 2012, because it takes about a year once they get it for them to make it into an actual object, Um, so assuming that I make all of my deadlines, 2012, um, I'm on teaching leave next semester, so I have no excuse. Well, this is the first one, um, and I keep having to look at it again because I I keep being invited to to lovely events like this. Um, And and so, I mean, at a certain point, you have to kind of let it go. Like, I could rewrite this book for the rest of my life. And I think that in some ways, although it's really frustrating for authors, that once you turn a book in, it can be anywhere from nine months to a year or two. In in my case, because my editor was eight months pregnant when she bought the book, it was three years between when we sold the book and when it actually came out. And so... You know, there's a way in which that that cushion is really frustrating as a writer when you're really anxious to see your work in print, but it's also there's a way in which you can kind of let it go once it's out there and that it's no longer the kind of center of your universe, it's no longer the thing that feels like I mean, I still I still like this book a lot. I'm still happy that I wrote it, but I also don't feel like I can't kind of divorce myself from this book or its process, right? That that there's a way in which and I don't want to spend the rest of my life rewriting the same work cuz I'm really excited about this thing I'm doing now. So, I, I I don't really kind of occupy that headspace. There are are days which, I mean, I I used to kind of edit work by reading it out loud because I would think if I can't commit to saying this word out loud, then the phrasing is wrong then something is off here. Um, And I think that that can be dangerous when you are a writer because sometimes that anxiety comes not from the work itself. I mean, at the point when you're kind of reading in public, it's different than reading to yourself to edit. Because the point we're doing in public, that anxiety and one desire to edit yourself can also come from, oh, like I was going to read this story with all these curse words in it, and now like these children have showed up in the front row, um, and so <laughs> there are there are ways that um, that I try to resist that tendency to self-edit because it becomes about something other than the writing. It becomes about the kind of performance of the writing instead of the work itself. And like this work is done. Like I don't want to rewrite this book ten times. So. Um, I just kind of had to let it go. Um, So, yeah, I mean, there are certainly moments where you read a lot of criticism. And, and I mean, the thing about criticism is that criticism is always a conversation. And so, I mean, even even good criticism can be frustrating if you feel like somebody's telling you they loved your book, but, like, they loved it for something that you weren't trying to do at all. Um, And so there are... The first, like, two months that the book was being reviewed, I read everything, and I would, like, Google myself every day, and I would be really excited. Just that the people were reading and talking about it, and then that became, at a certain point, unexciting, not because I wasn't glad that people were still reading it and talking about it and often saying quite kind things about it, but because it just, wasn't, it just wasn't the headspace I needed to live in right then. It wasn't, there was nothing I could do about it. Like this book existed in a world of its own object and I wanted it to have its own life. I feel, I mean, I know that, that writing and childbearing analogies are often kind of strained, but there's a way in which like at a certain point, you let a kid go, right? Like you still have fond affection of them, but, but you can't live their lives for them. And so I feel like this book has its own life and that's fine and people can love it or react to it or, or hate it or whatever they will do with it but it's not my responsibility to kind of be right behind it explaining what it really meant to do or anymore. I'm a teacher, I can look at you menacingly for a long time until you feel shamed into talking. <laughs> um, is there, are, are there any last questions or not? Thank you for being such a lovely audience. This book I finished before, I didn't have, I mean, no one was waiting for it. So I, I finished it kind of piecemeal. I thought that I was finished with it um, in uh, 2006, which you may notice is several years ago. And I, I finished graduate school, and I thought you know, this was my, a version of this was my graduate thesis. And I thought, okay, it's done. And I had an agent at that time. And, um, and the conventional wisdom was you can't sell a short story collection without a novel. So she was like, I really like the short stories. We're going to wait for you to finish the novel, and then we'll sell them both. And I, and I was lucky enough to get a fellowship um, the year after I graduated so I spent a year um, at that fellowship and I thought okay I'll spend this fellowship a year writing this novel that, I, that I'm still writing how many years later um, but I'll finish this novel by the end of the year and then I'll have them both to give my agent and she can send them out into the world and instead I spent that whole year kind of continuing to revise the stories um, and, and writing new work and kind of tinkering with the manuscript in such a way that I hadn't realized I didn't think it was done until I kept trying to let it go and I kept thinking about sending it out into the world and, and thinking no it's just, it's just not ready it needs this it needs this and so I spent this whole year writing it and I felt really um, anxious because I I had to call my agent and I thought, you know, I'm going to tell her that I didn't do this thing that I promised her I'd do and I don't have anything for her on this novel, Um, so we'll see what she does. And she was really excited to see the new manuscript of the short fiction and she said, no, I think this is now strong enough that I can try to sell it by itself. Um, And so it ended up working out fine. Um, And then she was able to um, place the story that eventually was in Best American Short Stories 2008 in the Paris Review that summer and then she, um, we sold the book a couple of months after that um, and then there was a kind of long window and I thought you know, I, even then I, I knew that there would still be some editing so there was about a year and a half that I hadn't looked at the book because my editor um, was, was on maternity leave and hadn't gotten back to me with um, the edits before, before her baby was due and so when she came back from maternity leave and sent me her editorial notes, it, was, it had been like a year and a half since I'd looked at the book. And so it was kind of like coming to it new, and I was able to tinker with it a bit more then, and there were some stories that got almost completely rewritten in that process, and some things that stayed almost exactly the same. At the point when I finally let it go then, it had been such a long process that I thought, you know, whatever, whatever I would do to this book now would just be like writing a new book, and I might as well just write a new book. Um, so there was a moment at which I just had to kind of let it go. Um, largely, it's a matter of luck. I mean, this the unfortunate reality of publishing is that even if you find the kind of editor of your dreams, that editor may not have a job in six months. And so I've had friends who, like, made decisions about what house to, had multiple offers, and decided based solely on, like, this is the editor I want to work with, and that editor got fired, or that editor got a new job, or that editor left, and they were kind of in a weird situation. So I think partly it's a, it's a, it's a question of acknowledging, like, you only have X amount of control over that end of the process, because you don't necessarily... I mean, there are editors, I thought, well, like, I love all the books that they do. They'll love my book. And then they weren't the editors who made offers for it. Um, and there were other... And, and, and so there's a way in which I don't think you can have your heart set on a particular editor. I think you have more flexibility with an agent. And, and because an editor is probably going to have suggestions for your work, you don't want to go with an agent who is suggesting you edit your work in ways that don't make sense to you, because you have... More options there and and the agent will hopefully know um, what editors write for your books. So, I mean if you have a sense of kind of the books that you like to read and you see who the editors are, then when you're looking for an agent, one thing to do is ask well who would you who would you shop this book to who would you what house would you see it at and and see if they're on the same page as you are in terms of in terms of who you see putting out your book or what tradition you see your book falling into um, so you know at the point at the point when I, I did have offers, I think, you know, I love, I love Riverhead. I, I've loved, like, so many of the books that they put out, and so I was really happy to be part of that tradition, but it was also, it was a decision made, in some sense, um, and, I, and I love my editor, she's, she's great, but it was largely a decision made um, in terms of the house because that seemed like the thing that wasn't going anywhere. Um, some of the other offers were at houses that had, that were going through mergers or had just been um, bought by someone else, and I was like, you know, I, I have no idea what this, that situation is going to look like in a year. Um, and I've seen that happen to people that, who wrote really beautiful books that the editor was really excited about and then got kind of lost in some sort of corporate shuffle. So, Sorry, that's a depressing note on which to end. <laughs> Somebody asked me a happy question. <laughs> yes? Well, can you talk a little bit about the work you've studied at, uh, at Iowa? Um, well, my f- I, I mean, I had a, a really good kind of experience at Iowa. My first professor there was Elizabeth McCracken, who is wonderful. If you haven't read her work, especially a short story collection, you should read it. She's also, I mean, she made me a better writer and also a better teacher because she made me realize that sometimes the best advice is pragmatic advice and that she was not afraid to be very kind of hands-on with the story. And if not, again, that I did absolutely everything she said, but there was a way in which she kind of, Wishy-washy abstractions are hard to react to one way or the other. So if somebody's like, well, you know, just take this and make it better. Like what you you don't know what to do with that. Whereas if somebody says, no, cut the middle of the story, start it on page eight, change the dog to a chihuahua, you're like, really? Huh? But it gives you something to think about, and even if those things all individually feel wrong, you have to articulate to yourself why they feel wrong and what it is that's important about the dog being a Whippet and a Chihuahua, and that the first seven page, what the first seven pages of the story are doing, and, and whether they could be doing it better. Um, and so I, I think that that was a really useful experience for me to have going into workshop because it gave me something to kind of think about and sharpen right away. And she was just really generous with her time. Everyone there was was incredibly generous with their time. Um, Jen McPherson, who's just kind of one of the, the kindest and most patient readers you could ever have, and will always kind of direct you to. Not necessarily the most expected things. I mean, I think one of the ways, one of the, the struggles you can have teaching contemporary literature is that sometimes it starts to feel like a closed circle, like you're telling people to read people who are kind of like them, and some people write like the people who they're reading, and they, they write things that are kind of imitations of fairly recent work because all that's all we're reading, um... And, and so the great thing about Jim McPherson is that he'd direct you to something that like, you never would have thought of as having anything to do with your work, but somehow you'd find something in it, that, that there was a way that he made the world of fiction feel more expansive. Um, and I had Adam, Adam Hazlett and and Charles D'Ambrosio were my last two professors, and they were also both really fantastic. I mean, Adam was, was a really sharp sentence-level reader. Um, and so he would go through and kind of remind you that all work happens ultimately on the sentence level. And... Um, and, and Charleslesdonmbrozio was he was just like, it was just always really exciting to be in his class that he was the, he was a person who's kind of aesthetic. I never figured it out, but there was something pleasing about that, and that like a lot of times in a workshop, you can figure out by the third day kind of what makes the teacher tick. And then you can sort of predict, well, like, this story the teacher will like, and this will be the tone of that workshop, and this story the teacher will hate, and that will be the tone of that workshop. And and I could never figure it out then, and it was good, because it kind of kept you on your toes, and there was a way in which the conversation became not about, like, people trying to please the teacher or people trying to annoy the teacher, but about a kind of genuine conversation about the work and what it contained. Thank you, guys.